Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. All right, Lee. Well, kid. What's the story? Story, Rory. No harm, no foul. Oh, my, yeah. Leave a bleed now. He's bleeding massive. Yeah, right. Jesus, I have a head on me like a robber's dog. Sure tells himself. Hi, Peter. Hello, how are you, Nicola? How are you doing? I'm doing grand. How are you? Good, good. Well, this whole podcast obviously is about um, how people know you. And obviously your name is, you know, linked to homelessness in Ireland forever. But maybe we'll go back to like when you first started out, why you decided to get into being a priest and, you know, what were you like as a young fella? My my father was a, was a doctor in a small town, Newry, which was a small town then. They call it a city now for some <laughs> strange reason. But it was a small town then. So, uh, and he he had a, he had his own practice. It was in the days before he had a partner or an assistant. So he had his patients, and if a patient got sick at three o'clock in the morning, he had to go out. He didn't have anybody to help him or to cover weekends or take alternate weeks. So I used to hear the phone going regularly. And my father would get up and go out to see one of his patients. Sometimes the phone would go twice in the night. He'd get up and go out. And I never heard him complain. So I think I got a sense of service from my father. And my mother was a Welsh Protestant who converted to, to Catholicism in order to marry my father. Because back in those days, if a Catholic married a Protestant, they were going to go to hell for all eternity. So to save my father that fate, my mother became a Catholic. And like many converts, she became more Catholic than the Catholics themselves. That's what always happens. (laughs) So I got a sense of faith from my mother. It's obviously mass every Sunday, family rosary every evening. Had to be there, no excuses. So a sense of faith from my mother and a sense of service from my father. So when I was in school and I decided what I wanted to do, I wanted to be of service to others within a faith context. Mm. And so becoming a priest was then uh, a a recognized, respectable way of of doing that. So I decided I would try and become a priest and see how it goes. So that's how I ended up in the Jesuits and in the priesthood. And I must say, I've never looked back. I've been absolutely, life for me has been absolutely wonderful gift. uh, And I have absolutely no regrets at at becoming a priest, none whatsoever. And how did your priesthood then kind of go into the homeless side of things? How did that come about? uh, That came about by accident. I, uh, the Jesuits in 1974 decided they wanted to do something in the justice area because we weren't very strong in the justice area. We were running schools for, for privileged children and retreat houses for people who could pay. Uh, so they decided we wanted, we had to do something for in the area of justice. 
So they asked Dublin City Council for a flat in the inner city, and they gave us a flat. And so the Jesuits, the inner city was then by far the most deprived area in the whole country. Mm. Uh, so they looked for volunteers to move into the flat. Didn't get too many. <laughs> but there are three of us volunteered and the three of us uh, moved in. So the the housing was appalling. There were, These were the old tenement houses mm. from the 1800s divided into flats for families. So in our house, there were eight families. There was no soundproofing between floors. So we could hear the news on the television in the flat below us perfectly clearly. Some of the houses had one outside toilet for all eight families. Place was crawling with rats. The rats are the size of little kittens oh. and immune from every poison that had ever been invented. Uh, the housing was terrible. And the unemployment rate was 75, 80% uh, because traditionally inner city people worked on the docks, loading and unloading ships. And then when containerization came in, their jobs went. So unemployment rate was very high. So young people growing up in the inner city never expected to get a job. Mm. So uh, we moved in. The issue wasn't homelessness. The issue was young people leaving school early. They were leaving school at the very latest by the age of 12. They were hanging around the streets all day long. Many of their parents were unemployed, couldn't give them any money. So what were they doing? A little bit of robbing. Mm-hmm. By the time they got to 16 and 17, they were doing a lot of robbing and they were going to jail. So that was the issue that we started to address. We opened a youth club for all the kids in the area. We opened a lovely craft center. They could make lovely crafts and they were able to sell them, make a few bob. We were able to employ some of the young people in making the crafts and we'd sell them to the shops in town to pay their wages. So we did that for a few years. And then I came across a young lad, nine years of age, sleeping on the street. So we said, look, we better do something for for this young fellow and others like him. So we had a youth club, we had a craft centre, we had employment schemes, so let's get a house and uh, open a little hostel. So we did. We got a house. We took in six boys up to the age of 16. Why boys? There were no girls on the streets back in the 1970s. Mm. That only came later. So we opened this hostel for six boys. Uh, I thought no more of it. It was just another project for the inner city young people who needed it. So I ran that for a couple of years and then they were leaving that at 16, 16 and a half. They were growing out of it and they were going back on the streets because there was nothing for them. So we said, well, we look, we better open a hostel for the over 16s. So we got another place. We opened a hostel for the over 16s and then the numbers grew and grew and grew and we had to get another hostel. Then the drug problem hit Dublin and we had 14, 15 year olds coming to us injecting heroin. So we had to open a detox centre. Then the young people leaving the detox centre, where were they going to go? Back into hostels where other people were using drugs. So we had to open a drug-free hostel for the ones leaving. The t- then the Child Care Act came in and we had to separate out the under 16, under 18s from the over 18s. So we had to get another hostel. So it just went like that from year to year. There was no yeah. big um, we just said, well, look, we're doing this. We'll do it for another year. Mm. What, what do we need to do? And so uh, that, that's, that's the way it evolved. There was no, uh, it wasn't my intention to work with homeless people for the rest of my life. 
there was no plan for how I want to work with homeless people. It just sort of evolved. It evolved organically and naturally. Uh, so that's how it that's how it happened. That, I know it's awful to hear of that nine-year-old boy being on the street, but I wonder, does that nine-year-old boy know that he basically set this in motion and so oh, many people... Let, he never lets us forget it. <laughs> <laughs> He's still living with us. Oh, he has a little great. house. Yeah, he has one of our little, uh, little uh, houses. Uh, we have about 500 apartments and houses uh, where homeless people can have a can have permanent uh, lifelong accommodation so he has he has one of those uh, and he doesn't let us forget <laughs> he says half of what the trust uh, has belongs to me <laughs> i started all this he's what? a lovely young he, he's not a young man now but he he's a, he was a lovely young lad then uh, and he's he, he's a lovely fellow now yeah that's one of the things i love most about your charity is that there are lots and lots of homeless charities in Ireland and each kind of seems to do focus on, you know, whether it's food runs or whatever. But you guys actually like seem to look at the root of the problem. They have nowhere to go. And it's not like you're just also just giving them a house and then you turn your back on them. The, you know, they have support there, which I love. It's just like because there's people with addictions, there's people with mental health problems. You can't just hand them keys and then think everything's going to be OK. Yeah, no, there are other organisations doing much the same. Focus Ireland is uh, the, uh, the, uh, the the Vincent de Paul do the de Paul Trust, uh, so and the Simon Community. So we're not doing anything unique, but we do say that you know the solution to homelessness is to give people a home. That's our mm-hmm. philosophy. So while we have now 25 hostels with almost a thousand homeless people staying in the hostels every night, hostels are not a solution to homelessness. Hostels get people off the street and that's important, but they're still homeless. So our priority is providing houses and apartments for for people, particularly single people. That's our focus. Focus Mm -hmm. Ireland, focus on families particularly, you know, so that's our priority. We have about 500 at the moment. We have 250 more in the pipeline to come through this year and uh, uh, and next year. Uh, so, yeah, we want, and then we have that support service, uh, particularly those who are more needy. Some people don't need it. Mm. We dealt with a young man, uh, you know, he had a part-time job. He was, he was paying 900 euros a month for his rent. Landlord comes along and says, uh, next month the rent's 1350 50% increase he had no way of paying that he gets evicted and he ends up with us so all he needs is a place to live he doesn't need our support he mm-hmm. needs a place to live and get on with the job uh, so some of many homeless people but those who do need support yeah we have a support team several support teams in place mm. And they would consist uh, of maybe an addiction counsellor, a social worker, a mental health person. And they're available 24-7 to help out with. So if somebody, uh, they might call on somebody if they're very needy, they might call every day. They might call twice a day. Mm. Uh, they're available on the phone. So at three o'clock in the morning, if somebody's in distress, they can ring up. If they can deal with it over the phone, well and good. If they can't, they'll go out to them. They got one phone call uh, from somebody in distress saying, there's a pigeon in me sitting room. (laughs) (laughs) 
And they answer, what do you want us to do? We open the window. (laughs) (laughs) They're available uh, 24-7, and that is important to you. You're wasting your time just giving the person with serious uh, uh, personal issues no point just giving them the key of the door because they're not going to hold on to it. No. we have we have we have what we call that what's called the housing first model. That means you take people with multiple problems, take them straight off the street if they're on the street, and you give them an apartment. There's no conditions attached. They don't have to deal with their addiction. They don't have to deal with their mental health if they don't want to. But they have an apartment, uh, and that they have that for life. And there's only two conditions: you pay the rent which is no problem because it's usually deducted at source from their welfare. Mm. And you don't cause any trouble for the neighbours. That's the only two conditions. Uh, But with the support team, we find, um, you know, about 85, 90% of them still retain their accommodation one year later. Uh, And when you have stable and secure accommodation, you can begin to think about dealing with your addiction. Or your mental health, which you can't do if you're living in hostels or you're walking the streets all day long. So it is, it is very, it is very successful. Um, and if they do mess up, they do cause problems to the neighbours. Yeah, we throw them out, but we give them somewhere else, maybe, maybe, maybe a little further away from the neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> Not two doors so down. <laughs> it's our policy. We never put anybody onto the streets. We will always transfer them to somewhere else. Now, they may not accept it, but we will always transfer them to somewhere else. So if somebody comes into one of our hostels and smashes all the windows, we'll move them to another hostel with less windows. <laughs> we, don't, we don't call the guards. We don't throw them out. See, I don't, that's what I mean. The support system must be amazing for people. Like, But then there, I suppose there is an idea of what a homeless person is, you know, inverted commas. People assume you probably have an addiction problem. And yet, as you mentioned, that young guy, his rent just went up. He had nowhere to go. And I, I know myself years ago, I was working in RTE part time. I was working in a newspaper as well, part time. So both of them were based in Dublin. It was pre-COVID, obviously. I couldn't find anywhere to live in Dublin. Like I w- must have went to 100 viewings. I was getting rejection letters, rejection emails. And I ended up staying in um, hostels all around the city because... There's only so much couch surfing you can do in your friends' houses. Mm. And I stayed in like, they weren't homeless hostels. They were backpacking hostels. I was sharing rooms with like Italians and Americans yeah, who were going yeah. out all night. And But it's very easy to slip into that. You know, the next step for me would have been the homeless hostel. Yeah, the public perception is that homeless people all have an addiction or a mental health problem. And the reason for that is because they are the ones who are visible, they're the yes. ones on the street. They're the ones who are sleeping rough. They're the ones who are begging. And so that shapes the perception. But the vast majority of homeless people don't have those issues. Like that young man who had a part-time job. We dealt with another uh, single father with two children. Lovely lovely father, lovely children. Never missed a month's rent. Landlord says they're going to uh, sell the house. You have to move out himself. And the two children become homeless. Uh, so, you know, the only problem most people, homeless people today have is they don't have enough money yeah. to be able to go out and get alternative accommodation. And the age group, the age group with the biggest number of homeless people today is the not to four age group. Oh, really? Children who are homeless with their families. That's the, that's, and they're, 
many of those uh, homeless people, some of them are working, some of them are, uh, some of them have been involved in their community uh, while they, before they got evicted out of the community. Uh, you know, we got to change the perception of homeless homelessness. And as you say, almost anybody who's renting or paying a mortgage, if they fall sick for in long term illness or they become unemployed, they're at serious risk of losing their home and becoming homeless. Yeah. So it's uh yeah, it's it's uh, and family homelessness. You know, before 2014, there was no such thing as family homelessness. <laughs> it was a tiny, tiny little drop in the ocean. Mm. Now it's the big problem. Uh because with a single homeless person, okay, you can get them off the streets and give them a, put them in a hostel, but you can't do that with a family. You've got to provide a family uh space for for them. So it's become the huge big issue uh in in the last uh six seven years and that must be really heartbreaking to see like yes. you can't i can't imagine a family will sleep on the streets because they're so visible you know the different they'll get picked up and brought to a hostel or a hotel or whatever but like to know that there's children that are probably all sleeping in the same bed as their parents and they're crammed into a room it's so heartbreaking yeah, children need, they need security mm. and they need routine. And they don't have either of those when they're homeless. Uh, it's damaging. They're, and it has been documented. It, it is damaging to those children. It is damaging to them emotionally, psychologically and educationally. Because you can't go to school and focus and concentrate if in your back of your mind you're wondering where are you going to sleep tonight uh, or will you have anywhere to sleep tonight or will you be sleeping in your dad's car? Uh, so they're being damaged. And that damage, men, our children are resilient. Many of them will overcome that in time, but some of them won't. And some of those children who are today are homeless through absolutely no fault of their own are going to end up in our services and are going to end up in, in addiction uh, and then and end up in prison simply because they were so damaged by that experience uh, that they couldn't they couldn't cope so yes it's 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 appalling it's heartrending it's a job that i suppose that it's never ever going to be fully fixed there's always probably going to be some level of homelessness in every country around the world but for you what gives you the joy of the job like what makes you go yes this is a good day the big joy is seeing somebody moving into their own apartment, getting the key of the front door and moving in. And you see their face and their face lights up. And they say, you mean this is for me? <laughs> uh, it's like a dream come true. Uh, and that really is the uh, the joy of, of, of this. There will always be some homelessness, but nobody should be homeless for more than a few months. Uh, you know, somebody, right, if somebody, the relationship breaks down, for example, uh, and they be, and the, the, say the, the partner becomes homeless, the man becomes homeless. Right, we need some sort of homeless accommodation for them while sorting out what the future mm possibilities are but that should only take a few weeks or a few months at absolute most a few months there is no reason for anybody to be long-term homeless finland has abolished homelessness finland closed their hostels but they provided apartments they built apartments they built enough apartments they said we're going to make sure that every person who's homeless we're going to give them a home and they did that they've abolished homelessness 
that's what we need to do. Only a solution to homelessness, as I said, is to give people a home. We need to, and the majority of homeless people and the majority of people on the social housing waiting list are single. Yeah. So all they need is a one bed apartment. They're yeah. not looking for a four bedroom mansion with a swimming pool. <laughs> a one bed apartment. Can we not provide one bed apartments for all the home people who are homeless? Uh, of course we can. That's not a. Uh, it's not rocket science and it's not going to, well, it will cost a lot of money, but we have to do it. It's costing a lot of money at the moment because they and uh, homeless families are being put into the private rented sector mm-hmm. and they're paying astronomical rents. At least the government is paying astronomical yeah. rents for them. And in fact, we are giving to private landlords now in order to house low income families we are giving private landlords two million euros every single day. Jesus. So we're spending a huge amount of money on low-income families accommodation. And we need to start diverting that money into building apartments. How hard is it? As, as obviously you have been out there, you say the 500 houses you guys have, you're getting 250 more. How hard is it to actually get them? Like, do you have to build them yourselves or is it a case of you're able to go out and the government get involved and say, this is all yours or how? Like, how's... It's a variety. It's a mm. variety. Uh, our preference is to take over old rundown buildings and mm. renovate them. And there's huge advantages to that. It's first of all, it's quicker and cheaper than building. Secondly, usually those rundown buildings are a blight on the streets. Yeah. <laughs> they're a nice or and uh, so you're you're bringing life back to the to the streets. And generally speaking, the neighbors don't object to you. <laughs> they're delighted <laughs> to see this rundown building that's been lying there empty for the last 10 years. They're delighted to see it coming back into use. Mm. So that's our preference when we can do that. However, we have built some ourselves uh, and we do get some from the local authorities. The local authorities are under pressure to look after homeless people. So they will purchase or build uh, uh, properties and give them to us uh, for the purpose of, of looking after homeless people. So we get them whatever, whatever, whatever way we can, really. But it's <laughs> it's expensive work you're doing. It's expensive work, but uh, we do get we we get we get about thirty million from the government. We still have to raise another ten or twelve million ourselves. It is expensive work, but providing housing is expensive. Yeah. Uh, that's there's no there's no way around that. I'm afraid. But no, do you know what I think most Irish people would put their trust into you. You know what I mean? They they know you're you're an established trust. You guys do great work. It's been we've well documented. You've done such amazing work that if they see something that's a project by the Peter McFerry Trust, they're going to be like, right, how can I help? Where can I give money? Because, it you know, you've already shown that this works. Yeah, we get a lot of public support, very much so. Uh, uh, and without that public support, we couldn't do what we're doing, at least not all that we're doing. So, yeah, we've built up a credibility uh, and we have some terrific uh, pr- uh, housing projects uh, that we have we have developed or built. Uh, so and we do have a very, very good communications team who, uh, you know, who will uh, communicate with the public 
uh, as much as possible to inform the public what we're doing, to let them know what we're doing. Uh, so, yeah, we, 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 the public have been very, very good to us. Thank God. But it's also because we don't want to see people on the street. We it's it's horrible. You see an older person begging outside the central bank or something like that. You know, you see someone who's in their sixties or seventies, and you think that shouldn't be. You shouldn't be there. Or uh, you know, you see someone with a buggy begging, and you're like, this this is not right. So it's like, if we give money to you, we know that that's going in the right direction. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. I think a lot of people would uh, feel, you know, if you uh, if you have somebody with a buggy and they're begging, maybe they're on a scam. They don't know. <clears throat> they're suspicious. Uh, so they feel right. I, I won't give money to that person. It may be they may be very genuinely in need, but mm. people just don't know whether they're genuinely homeless or not. So they say, no, I won't give money to that. I'll give money to an organization and they donate to us then. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's their way of responding to the 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 sight of homeless people, the discomfort that homeless people on the street creates in each one of us. It's their way of responding, and uh, yeah, we will we will use that money to try and address uh, as much as uh, homelessness as possible. We have a CEO uh, tells a story. Sometimes feels this way. CEO tells a story of he was walking along the street with his seven-year-old son and he saw a guy begging and his son says to him, what's that man doing there, daddy? And he said, oh, he's homeless. And his son looks up at him and says, but you work with the homeless, don't you? And uh, he says, yes. And his son said, well, you're not doing a very good job, are you? (laughs) (laughs) It sometimes feels like that. You know, oh, I'd say you, you guys have some days where you're like, I, I give up. I can't do this anymore. Nothing's going our way. It, it's it's very it's very distressing when people come to you for help and you can't help them. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a mental health problem they have. You can't solve their mental health problem. You can advise them. You can suggest to them. You can bring them to a doctor, but. Uh, it's 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 distressing when people come clearly with need and they're in distress because of their need and there's very very little you can do about it because the needs are beyond our ability to uh, to address yeah and like there's some people that you know would might make a comment like I don't want to give someone begging money because they'll just use it on drink or drugs and I would say first of all if I was living on the streets I would be turning to them because it's not a pretty place out there, you know, 4am yeah, yeah. on a Saturday night and you're in a sleeping bag. I'd be like, give me whatever can knock me out. But I suppose like you can't help everyone. That's the problem. Yeah. You know, there's there's some people who don't want to be helped. And there's some people who have have had everything kind of given to them that they possibly can and they just still can't reach that. And that must be really hard to kind of turn them away or not turn them away, but say, I've really tried and you're it's not happening or whatever. Well, I'd always say we're available to people. Mm. We're not trying to change anybody. We're not trying to uh, solve anybody's problems. We're there to walk with people as they try and solve their own problems. And most people do want help. I, I don't believe there's people out there who don't want help. But there are people who have uh, looked for help maybe and not got us. And uh, if they do that a few times, they just give up and they presume they're never going to get help. And so you approach them and, no, they, I don't want help. 
But it's not that they don't want help. It's just they have been disappointed so often in the past that they don't want to be disappointed yet again. And there's nobody who wants to sleep on the street. People are sleeping on the street because the alternatives are worse as far mm-hmm. as they're concerned. The alternatives may not be safe. The alternatives may be a lot of drugs. Uh, there may be people in hostels that they're fighting with. Uh, you know, they're sleeping on the street because they feel that is the best of a lot of bad options that mm-hmm. are available to them. So, yeah, people often ask me, should you give money to people who are who are on the street? I say, look, I don't know. So Sometimes I think you should, sometimes I think you shouldn't. Um, but I have no problem giving somebody a euro or two, even if I'm fairly sure they want to spend it on drugs. My attitude is if they, if they have a drug problem, they're going to get their money for their drugs one way or the other. Yeah. But better they beg for their drug money than rob some poor lady's handbag. Mm-hmm. So I don't think people should have any worries about giving people money if that's what they choose to do. And what about people who I suppose, like I would think the same as you, I would think, you know, give them a few euro. It's better that they get it from me. That like, And plus a one euro to us is not going to cripple us. That one euro might really help them. And it might mean they don't rob that old lady. But what about, I suppose, my sister would be a great advocate for this. When she sees someone, she goes up and asks them, do you want a sandwich? Do you want a coffee or something like that? But I would always be of the mindset they do get a lot of there's a lot of groups that help feed the homeless. And I would yeah. think that maybe they might prefer the coins. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's the food isn't really a problem for uh, for homeless people, for most homeless people. Uh, yeah, I my there's something you can do. I always say it's more important than giving money when you pass by saying no. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine sitting there begging and thousands of people passing you by. And where are they all looking anywhere except at you and so you're sitting there and people passing by as if you did not exist how does that make you feel so if somebody just says look uh, uh, hello how are you what's your name what are you and you're treating them as a person mm-hmm. uh, and it sounds so trivial but it's so important and I said that to a group of women once and a woman came up to me sometime later and said I heard what you said and I decided to try it so I was walking along my little three year old son we saw a guy begging and I gave my son two euro. I said, now I want you to go put that in the cup in front of that man up there. So up she went and said, hello, how are you? Freezing cold. What's your name? How's business? A little bit of small talk. Mm-hmm. And then she said, look, my son has something he wants to give you. And the little fellow went up and he put the two euro into the cup. And the homeless man put his hand in his pocket and he took out a Mars bar. And he said, and I have something I want to give your son. Now, what was he responding to there? It wasn't the two euro though he still made a profit, mm. but it was the fact that he was treated as a human being. When I'm passing by, I often say to people, uh, you know, look, I'm sorry, I don't have any change on me. And you know what the answer often is? That's okay, thanks. Yeah. That's the thanks for, the thanks is for just not having ignored me mm. as if I didn't exist. And so if people do decide to give money, make sure you say something. You know, it's demeaning. It's demeaning to have to depend on charity. So when we give some money to somebody, we are demeaning them. And the way around that Mm -hmm. is to give them money, but have a word with them. And that's not demeaning. That's treating them with respect and treating them with compassion. Uh, so giving the money and just saying, look, uh, I'm sorry, that's, that's all I have with me or uh, what's your name or freezing cold. Mm. Uh, 
uh, do something with that. You know, just to say a few words while you're giving the money. The worst thing you can do is walk past and throw the money into a, into the cup and, and walk on. Uh, that's that's demeaning to homeless people. It's funny you mentioned the Mars bar. My um, sister works with the homeless in Limerick and she would come back sometimes and say, you know, oh, one of the one of the clients or one of the homeless came in and bought her in a bag of sweets. And she's like, you have nothing. Don't be bringing me anything. And but it's because I suppose she knows them all by name. And when she sees them in Limerick, she would say hello. And obviously they come into the hostel and and she would chat to them about their day and help them, I suppose. And that to them is is a kindness that given the two euro wouldn't give. Yeah, no, look, I mean, our self-respect depends on the belief that we have something to contribute to others. Now, mo- most people do that either through their family, through work, through voluntary work, or a mm. combination of those. But if you believe you have nothing to give to others, that destroys your self-esteem. Mm. So the belief that you have something to give to others is, uh, is, at, this, is at the heart of building self-esteem. And even just being able to give a few sweets to somebody uh, and being those sweets being accepted gratefully and graciously, that is so important. We have students who come into our drop-in centre on uh, uh, right throughout the whole year. We'd have six or eight students every week uh, and the best part of the week is some homeless people uh, talk to them, tell them their story. Mm. Uh, and people say to me, do homeless people not feel embarrassed doing that? I said, no, they feel wonderful doing that because what they're doing, these kids are coming along here to get something from homeless people that all their money and credit cards can't buy. And so the homeless people are giving them something which is so important to them and which only those homeless, those homeless people can give. And that is a great uh, self-esteem booster. So it's a win-win situation. The students get a lot out of it because they get behind the image of homelessness and meet the real person. Mm. And the homeless people get something, get a lot out of it because they're giving something to these to these kids. So a Monday morning comes along and uh, some of the homeless people come in, they see the students sitting there and say, oh, you have students. Do you want me to talk to them? <laughs> they really want to. They enjoy it. They love it because it's they feel they feel good about doing that. They feel good in themselves. Yeah. Your success stories must mean must mean a lot to you. The people who've, you know, gotten houses from you, have gone on to maybe get a job, maybe move out into a new house with a family or whatever, they must be the things that keep you kind of going, right, it's another day today. I'm gonna get up and do it again. Yeah, there, there is a lot of success. Some of the success you don't even know about. Mm. I mean, somebody who moves on, gets a job, and uh, they, they, you might never see them again. The ones you see constantly are the ones who are getting back into difficulties. <laughs> but, you know, I get people coming up to me in the street and say, hello, Peter. And I say, who are you? And they say, not remember me. And I say, no. They say, I was in your hostel 25 years ago. And I say, how the hell am I supposed to remember you? Yeah, there's been a few more since you. <laughs> uh, and then they'll tell you how they've gone, got on and they've done well and they've got a job and they've got a family and they've got a house. Yeah, that happens to me quite often. And it is it is wonderful. Uh, so there is a lot of success stories. And actually, some of our staff were themselves homeless drug users. Oh, wow. And they, 
they got through it and they sorted themselves out and they're in some ways often the best staff you have because being there done that. <laughs> yeah, they know the signs. Yeah. They know when yeah. someone's maybe going to start using again or something, you know. On the other hand, uh, you know, I buried too many young people, died of drug overdose, died of suicide. Some of them young people, some of them young homeless people you are very close to. Uh, others are in jail. Some of them are in jail, maybe for long periods of time. So there's 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 gain, there's successes and failures, uh, and, but that's that's life. Yeah. And but like, did you ever say I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go into a different thing? I'm gonna take a quieter job. I'm gonna just do mass. And you know what? Somebody else can do the deal with this issue. No, you can't. You can't. You can't do that. You build up a relationship with homeless people, yeah. and you can't walk away. I mean, uh, we're, we never say we're a father figure. to Some of them will say to us, you're the father figure I never had. We will never say that because they have their own father. Mm. Uh, so we would never say that. But they, they see it that way, that we're the parents they, they never had. Uh, so uh, I was going to say there. Now they, of course, they say you're the uh, you're the grandfather I never had. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's uh, I forgot I forgot what I was going to say there. Say, so, well, it's good. Like it's great though. You've made such a difference on thousands of lives, and you don't even realize it probably half the time. Like as you say, you forget. You, it's another day. Somebody else comes in, and there's around this country, and even probably abroad, there's somebody who's telling their story to their son or whatever and going, well, that's because one man looked out for me. Yeah, you never know what you uh, what you have achieved. I mean, some people have gone on, as I say, and done very well. Would they have done very well if we hadn't been there for them? Maybe. We don't know. So we don't we can't take the credit for it. Because it may have happened anyway. Ah, Peter, take the credit. And you definitely take oh, the credit. Uh, and then the opposite is also true. If somebody goes to jail, <laughs> uh, do we take the blame for it? No. <laughs> uh, well, in that case, it's everybody we've else's done, fault. We've done the best we can and uh, we'll be there for them when they come out of jail. And we make that commitment to them. We don't abandon them. Mm. Uh, so when somebody comes to us, they come for life, as it were. We are there for them all the time. We will never, ever turn them away. Uh, we will, if they're in jail, we'll have, we'll have accommodation for them the day they, they leave jail. Uh, it may just be a hostel, but it may be uh, an apartment if we can. So, yeah, we, we, we will not abandon people. That's part of our ethos. Yeah. And that's a lovely ethos to have, you know, there's there's probably people who have pushed you to limits that you think that you didn't have. And, you know, a lot of people would say that's it, you know, but to be able to say they still are there. And sometimes people push you to see, will you go away? And then you're still there. Yeah, so. I mean, one one young fella came in to me one day and he sat down and he said, Peter, you won't give up on me, will you? Oh. And I knew then his life was in a tang, was in a mess. And he was just afraid we were going to walk away from him. Uh, of course, we didn't. Uh, but it's, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you, you you have to make that commitment. Um, and that's, when you make that commitment to them, 
you're affirming their importance and their value and their self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you say, uh, if you say, look, we can't work with you anymore. We've done everything we can. You're putting them down. Mm-hmm. I, I've heard the stories of so many homeless people. And one story after another is more heartrending and more, uh, 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 they're just disaster childhood stories. Mm-hmm. So I can understand why homeless people behave the way they behave. And when they are annoying me and aggravating me and maybe, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I have to stop and think and say, you know, that could be me. If I had grown up in their circumstances, mm-hmm. I would be exactly the same as that. So that person who is now really getting under my skin, I could have been that person very easily. So you you learn very quickly not to judge people. Uh, if I am to judge one of those homeless people and say, there's a little scumbag, there's a little junkie robber, <clears throat> what am I doing? I'm actually judging myself because I know... If I had been born and grown up in their family, I would be exactly the same as them. That's a really good way to look at it, because as you mentioned earlier on, we're all only a couple of steps away from it, unless you're multimillionaires and most of us aren't. So all it takes is, a, you know, um, a landlord selling your house or a job that goes bust, which obviously the last year and so that could have easily happened to many of mm-hmm. us. But it, I suppose it's having the empathy. And I do think Irish people are very good in many, many Irish people, obviously not everybody, in seeing that in the empathy because we never expected to have money. We grew up thinking, you know, you're going to always be poor. And then money came along and we were like, what the hell did you do with it? And then after the recession and the last year, people are just like, I, I need something better. I need to be kinder. Yeah, yeah. Well, the pandemic has taught us that. That one that value of 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 caring for other people is so important. Uh, making money isn't isn't the uh, the priority in in our lives. Um, so I mean that is very uh, that is very important. What we've learned from the pandemic. Can we continue it? You know, my fear is the richer we become, the more we have to protect, mm-hmm. and therefore the more we have to keep people away. <laughs> who might be a threat to what we possess. Mm-hmm. And so the ultimate expression of that is the gated community where you live behind these gates, electronic gates. Nobody can get near you and all that you have is protected. Uh, the danger is that uh, as we become wealthier, as, as a society, we become wealthier. We want to keep all these we want to keep all these refugees out. We don't want to share uh, what we have got with with other people who have nothing. And and individually, as we become wealthier, the the the, the fear is, the danger is that we will put up walls around ourselves and what we have in order to uh, to keep people out. Oh, so you find in poor neighborhoods that's where community thrives. Mm-hmm. People in poor ne- neighborhoods they don't have anything except one another. Yeah, they're used to knocking on each other's door and asking for help with, you know, the neighbor and the woman who lives upstairs and down the road. Like when I first went to the inner city, a mother of nine children came to me and uh, she was telling me that, you know, when she gets paid and maybe on the Wednesday, uh, the neighbors will come knocking and she lend the money. And I'm saying, you're mad. You haven't got enough money to last you through the week. Would you not (laughs) hold on to your money? (laughs) 
I was coming from this middle class attitude. Her security lay in the fact that she would give the neighbors money on her payday because she could get money from them on their payday. Yeah. That was her security. And here was me trying to <laughs> tell her, no, no, surround yourself, keep it for yourself. I was that was totally the wrong thing to uh, uh, to suggest to her. And um, for Peter, who anyone who lis- is listening to this and, you know, obviously are big fans of your work, obviously donations money wise are the big thing that you guys need. But in terms of other things, do you guys need or accept or want, I don't know, furniture or toiletries or anything like that as well? Because some people, I suppose, probably can't. Not everyone can donate money. So some people might say, well, look, what else do you need? What do I have that I could give? Well, anything that uh, sets up a, an apartment. I mm. mean, when we set up an apartment, we put in a television set, duvets, pillows, uh, sheets, uh, all that sort of stuff. That is always is very welcome. But I would say this, that, you know, the solution to homelessness isn't uh, fundraising. You know, people donate money to us. That's not going to solve homelessness. That's going to make life a bit easier for some homeless people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, the solution to homelessness is a political problem, and it has to be solved politically. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we would like is to get the right to housing into the Constitution. Yeah. Uh, now, what would that do? Many of the proposals that we call, we pre- present to uh, reduce homelessness come up against the barrier, well, the right to private property in the Constitution, eh, wouldn't, we couldn't do it. So we were proposing, say, an eviction, a ban on eviction for the next three or four years. We're told, no, the right to private property, we can't, we can't do that. Eh, so, you know, many, so we need to get the right to housing into the Constitution. We have the right to education in the Constitution. Mm. That means that every child in this country is entitled to an education, and if they're not getting it, they can go to the courts. And the courts will order the government to give this child an education. Mm. Now, we could get the right to housing into the constitution. It doesn't mean that the day after the referendum, everybody mm. can go to the key of the house. <laughs> not, that's not practical. Uh, but it does put pressure on government to give housing a priority, which up to now it hasn't had realistic. Mm. And to provide policies and a timeline. Uh, by which ever, this right to housing could be uh, could be given to everybody, and so we couldn't be fobbed off mm. by the excuse that the right to private property is in the constitution, and this would uh, uh, would would go against that right because the right, it it really means putting the right to housing into the constitution levels the playing field. Yeah. And so some of the proposals that are necessary uh, could be upheld because of the right to housing in the Constitution. And so if anybody has any influ- political influence, yes. can write letters. When I'm talking in schools, I say to the children in the school, you know, uh, yeah, I tell them to fundraise, of course, and send them yeah. to us. <laughs> but then I explain this is not going to solve them. Right to housing, right to your TD, right to the Minister for Housing, right to the Taoiseach, tell them that you demand the right to housing in the Constitution. Uh, and remember when in the year 2016, when we were, uh, school children were asked to write the proclamation rewrite the proclamation for 2016, the 1916 proclamation, or the year 2016, many and many of them put in at the right to housing, mm. uh, that everybody should have a house. Uh, so it's, uh, 
it's a political problem. It must be solved politically, and we have to take that. Uh, we have to take that on board. So, what do you think of the the housing for all the the initiative that they've announced now that you know so many houses are going to be built by twenty thirty? Do you take that with a pinch of salt, or does it look yes. like it's promising? It's it's welcome. Yeah. I must say the previous for the last fifteen or so years, there has been very very little social housing built. Mm. Uh, I mean, 19, in 1975, this country built 8,500 council houses. And in 1985, in the middle of a recession, we built 6,900 council houses. And in 2015, this country built 75 council houses. Oh, God. So the, that's the, 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 the housing policy for the last 15 years has been to uh, let the private rented sector uh, provide the uh, accommodation, even for low-income families. And that has failed. And it has pushed rents up because the demand for housing in the private rented sector uh, outstrips supply. Uh, so thankfully, in this housing for all, there is a new focus on building social yeah. housing. Building. Will it happen? I have... Well, we've never... in the last In the last five years... Uh, local authorities have built less than 2,000 council houses per year. This housing for all policy envisages building 9,500 houses per year. Can they jump up to that? I don't think so. They have the land, but every time you want to build social housing, you're going to get opposition from the neighbours. <laughs> and yeah. local councillors are looking to the next election and they yeah. don't want to annoy the neighbours and so they may not give planning permission so I think there are huge huge obstacles to uh, to the implementation of housing for all but many of the proposals in it are excellent mm-hmm. uh, and I really do I do welcome them and if they were implemented it would make an enormous difference yeah uh, so, yeah, I welcome housing for all, but I reserve my applause <laughs> <laughs> until I see the results. Yeah, we'll check in next year and see if they've got anywhere near the first target and if they're starting to take some boxes. But, um, Peter, before I let you go, because I've been talking to you for so long, um, do you get time to switch off from, you know, being this spokesperson, doing the work you do? Do you get time to just be Peter, who, you know, gets to have hobbies and be away from homelessness. You no, know, I, 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 yeah, I switch off between eleven o'clock at night and seven in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but often when I wake up at seven in the morning, I find a few text messages. <laughs> oh God! From people, uh, I have a dog. I walk the dog. Oh. Uh, that's a great. That's a great rest. That you know you. You're you're up to your eyes with something, and the dog just looks up at you and says, "I want to go for a walk." Yeah. So you have to you have to go off, and it's a great uh, a mind uh, a restful restful mind, whatever whatever the term is. Uh, but it is that's that's my main switch off is is walking the dog. Otherwise, uh, yeah, it's pretty constant. I have a phone with the, you know, I'd get maybe 80, 90 phone calls a day. Peter, I would have a heart attack. Apart from text messages. Oh, my God. Uh, So it's it's pretty continuous. Yeah, but that's what you, homeless people, if they need it, they need it. And you can't say no. Well, on behalf of all them, I have to say, I'd say every homeless person knows who you are and is very thankful for everything you do, whether they're 
still on the streets and their name is on a list or if it's the people who have gone through and are on the other side your work that nine-year-old boy and you the, that meeting was destiny and it it's made a huge impact in Ireland and hopefully the government will step up now and let you take a little bit of a break that would be great well it is our ambition to go out of business <laughs> to <become laughs> fingers crossed to become unemployed that is <laughs> our uh, um, I was at an entrepreneur's uh, uh, meeting once and they were sort of giving me a little award for being a social entrepreneur and everybody was getting up and saying how they they wanted to expand their company and how they wanted to go overseas and make more money and all and I got up and said look my I, uh, my aim is to go out of business <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly the opposite of what all the entre- entrepreneurs were, uh, were, were saying but that is Darium yeah we would love to go out of business because there was no longer any need for us yeah wouldn't that be the dream that would be a lovely day to say finally coming to a close and then you don't have to worry about that then you can go lie on the beach and read a book not going to happen in my lifetime. <laughs> oh, Peter, you're such a hero. It's been so nice to ha- take up so much of your time. I'd say this, you've about 80 missed calls probably on the phone, but uh, I got I to have you for an hour. Me. I can see it ringing. <laughs> oh, God. You just have to return them all now. Your head will be melted. Um, listen, thank you for everything. And thank you. Thank you, uh, thank thank you for giving me you. so much of your time. And I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you're you, a star. You. you look after yourself. You too. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye bye. And there you go. That was Father Peter McFerry there of the Peter McFerry Trust. And you heard from him there where you can go and donate, whether it's cash or homeware stuff. You can go to pmvtrust.ie. Obviously, money is um makes a great deal of difference to them. But as you heard, if you have stuff like pillows and duvets and TVs and stuff like that that you're not using anymore, I don't know who has a TV they're not using, but maybe you're really superly rich and you're listening to this podcast or maybe you own an electric store. I don't know. Maybe you're a mattress nick and you've got a few mattresses to give away. I don't know, but some people have more stuff than I do. But uh, if not, of course, you can donate. But one, just even a fiber can make a difference. You can head down, you go onto the website and see is there anything that you can do. You can be a volunteer. So do anything you can to help the homeless crisis that is going on at the moment. And as he said, it is not just the people with addictions who are currently living homeless now. This is families. These are people who lost their jobs in the pandemic. These are people like you and me who just had a string of bad luck and now cannot find their feet and they need someone on their side. And thankfully, people like Peter are there to not ju- to help them and not to judge them at the same time. And everyone deserves a second chance, don't they? Well, most people anyway. I don't deserve the second chance. So maybe we can help give them that. And as he said, if you can't do any of that, just stop someone who's, you know, sitting on the street begging and have a little chat with them. Ask how they are. Ask how their day has been. What's their name? Stuff like that. Very, very simple very small things that won't really make a difference to your day but make a massive difference to theirs if you have enjoyed this week's episode please do scroll back and see if there are any other ones that you might enjoy um until next week i will leave you with the important messages that peter has said and also i will also tell you to be kind to yourself and look after everyone around you all right slong of fall fakumij next week slan <laughs>